You're listening to episode 11, where we're going to discuss what does a UPG look like in the diaspora. Diaspora, we've been talking a lot about that big word, but again, we're going to now look at it more in our context. But one of the questions sometimes people ask is, as a UPG, someone from a UPG moves into North America, would they now be considered not unreached, but they would be considered reached because they're, because there's churches all on every corner? What do you That's think a- about that question? That's, that's a great question. I think we, we have to wrestle with that. But if we come back to defining what is an unreached people group, remember a few episodes back, we, we classified and defined a people group. And so it was uh, language, religion, ethnicity, cultural norms, uh, cultural things that, that grouped people together. So that was our definition roughly of a people group. And then for evangelistic purposes, it come in unreached is like, what is the, the largest um, segment of population of the gospel can travel without any hindrance or barriers? And then we talked about just some definitions um, as far as percentages, 2% evangelical, 5% uh, Christian adherent. And so we got to have that background. And if you, if you need to hear more of that, you can go back and listen to that previous episode. But when we think of that criteria and we think of a people group in the diaspora, really, are there enough believers from that people group to evangelize the rest? And so the argument is, is like, well, if they want to know about Jesus, they will show up, uh, you know, to First Baptist, First Methodist, First Presbyterian, First Assemblies of God, whatever church there is in any specific city, and they have access to the gospel, which is true, but that doesn't necessarily they mean that they have access to the gospel in their language in a way that they can understand it, adopt it, and then see the gospel spread through their um, their family and friends and the rest of their cultural influence or sphere of influence among their people group. So that, that's a, a big topic. Rebecca, when we think of those things, what, what do you perceive is the greatest barrier for UPG who's now living in North America? Well, one a big barrier lots of times is language can be one of the biggest barriers. Um, another barrier I think about is um, religion. I mean, they most of the peoples that are coming in have been following some type of a religion um, already. So maybe they choose not to look at another religion because of, you know, the religion background that they are. Um, yeah, what are some of the barriers you think of, bud? Uh, I, I just want to maybe come back and, and look at just maybe I'll go through all of them just kind of shortly uh, or briefly. But when we think about language, language is is a communication barrier. And by definition, the gospel is good news. Good news is meant to be told and proclaimed. And so language is a really big barrier. And I, I think there's tons of value in churches that are um, intentionally multi- uh, ethnic, as they would define it, oftentimes they're not really multi-ethnic, they're multi-race. Uh, but as soon as any church chooses a language to worship in, they're excluding every people that doesn't have access or use of that language. And so there's tons of value in those churches. And, and as we think about unreached people groups in the diaspora, what we start to see is people's identities start to shift uh, slightly, they have a hybrid identity. 
And you see that through language acquisition, because as, as many people have, have told us is learning language is 50% of knowing the culture. And so even as unreached people groups come to North America and they learn English, or if they're in French speaking uh, Canada, learning French, they're picking up pieces of our culture. So language is huge because it is the means of communication and the gospel is meant to be communicated. Now, I also know that many churches have ESL courses or, you know, they're teaching language. Um, I know some churches, they're, they're teaching language to be able to share the gospel to these people because they can't because they don't know the language. And what I would venture to say is that language is so important, not that they learn English, but that they hear the gospel in their language. Because that, that is who they are. That is, that is how they were, um, that's how they were, they were grown. There, there was a, uh, Barna, Barna did some research and they found that people's worldviews were firmly in place by age 13. And generally by age nine, like their moral foundations were already established. And so even if someone moves to the United States when they're 15 or 16, they learn English, they, they become a, a business professional or a business owner. Really deep down their worldview is what they were, you know, about age 13. And that number is kind of arbitrary, but that's where we see formation taking place in individuals of where they're rooted in their identity. And I can see language being a big part of that. And I, as you say that about language, I could just think about too, I mean, what I get to know about God, it'd be different if I was learning it in my second language or third language, but it being able to even read the scripture in my own heart language, the language that I taught with my family, you know, and um, how important that is. So I think that's an important piece for us as we consider diaspora is that language aspect. Maybe I can give, give an example because I want this to be super practical, like connect this to, to real world things. And so I, I have a friend um, who is un, from an unreached people group and she was not born in the country of origin that her identity is, is from. So she was born uh, outside of her country. So she was born, she's Pakistani. She was born outside of Pakistan. She was educated in England and is now living in the United States and came, came to faith from a Shia Muslim background. And I was doing an ethnographic interview with her a year or two ago. And a couple of things that stuck out, I think, just help, help us think through this. One is when I referred to her as a Pakistani-American, she corrected me and said, no, I'm not a Pakistani-American. I'm Pakistani. And she wasn't even born in Pakistan, but that was clearly her identity. The second thing that stuck out was she came to faith through the witness of an American. So evangelistically, she came to faith in English. She was educated in law school in English, very, very fluent. When she came to faith and was worshiping with an American church, she said that she would have only been an 80, 80% Christian. And that's probably not the best term, but what she was communicating was, I was, I, was, I was hindered in my growth of knowing who God was and how to live out my life as a Christian until I started worshiping with people who are worshiping in my language. And this was the key point. She said, the American church was trying to answer questions I wasn't asking, 
once I got connected to the South Asian church, they were answering questions I was asking. It was it was so moving for her whenever she comes into the, that that worship service and they're using a harmonium. And she says, this is my people using my instruments, worshiping my God. And so it is so important to understand that even though she wasn't born in her country of origin, how she's identifying, that identity was still so tightly wound up. And until she saw her people worshiping in a way that was culturally relevant, she felt like she was kind of like a traitor. She's like, I was I was not growing to the full extent that the Lord would have me. Well, and you, as you talk about her story, I think about how people that have moved from one location to another location, how um, maybe their identity even stretches. It gets bigger. It gets more because they're adding these new aspects, maybe a new language, maybe a new type of people, maybe um, even that education piece um, or people that they're meeting from other um, places or walks of life. So I think there's not just a change in, um, or we have to look beyond just those cultural and language pieces to even get wider and wider of those, I guess it's, in, what's the word? There's a homogeneous unit or what, maybe we need to talk about a definition of what is that specifically? Yeah, so Donald McGavern is the guy who uh, I don't I don't know that he necessarily defined it or come up with it the the idea of the homogeneous unit principle and homogeneity, uh, but Donald McGavern did define the homogeneous unit as a section of society in which all members have some characteristic in common, and then the homogeneous unit principle in the church growth um, model that flowed out of that was that he observed that people like to turn to Christ without crossing ethnic and linguistic barriers. And so most global urban migrants retain um, like their deepest bonds with their lifelong ethnic group. So like the, the, the story of the sister I shared, you know, she was actually only half Pakistani. Her mom was Iranian and her dad was Pakistani, but she clearly identifies that that was the deep, bond in her was that she was Pakistani. But the the flip side of that is in the diaspora, and this applies to unreached people groups, people's identities get wider. And what, what I mean by that is, let me just give an example. I was traveling overseas recently, and I was in uh, Bangladesh, and I'm, you know, the fair skinned guy among the darker, the darker skinned people. And so I stick out and people want to talk to me, especially if they've learned any English and they ask, where, where are you from? And they know you're probably Australian, English or American. And how do I answer whenever they ask me where I'm from? I don't tell them the city I'm from or the state I'm from. I tell them the country I'm from. But if I meet someone in my city, I'm probably going to tell them what's the specific region of the city that I'm in. And so likewise, if someone is from Afghanistan and they're in Afghanistan and someone asks, who are you, you know, who are you, where are you from? They're probably going to include, you know, the, the city, the province, maybe even a tribal designation. But once they get in the diaspora, their identity gets wider. They say, I'm from Afghanistan. Similarly, with any country that has tribal makeup, you see that, that their identity gets wider. The identity broadens and it softens. 
But ultimately what happens is their allegiances, they, they narrow and they diminish. So the, the category with of who they define as like my people actually gets narrower as their identity gets wider. And, and the reason why that's troublesome and wanting to see movements of people to Christ among unreached in the diaspora is traditionally from all the research I've seen is the, these people movements to Christ have happened within homogenous units, large groups of people who, who share a common characteristic. And so by definition, people in the diaspora, they're, they're coming from all kinds of variety of backgrounds, but then once they get here, their identity starts to hybridize. And then they're actually part of dozens and dozens of homogenous units. It could be because they play soccer and they are Nigerian, but they play soccer with Moroccans, Algerians, Libyans, uh, Iraqis. And then they also play soccer with Peruvians and Ecuadorians and Mexicans. Their identity at that point in time is they're a soccer player on the soccer team and has nothing to do with their nationality. The shared language is the sport. And so you have all of those dynamics going on. And it's maybe the best way to say this, Rebecca, is it's messy. There's not, there's not clear boundaries and lines when you really get in into the depths of what is a homogenous unit? What is an unreached people group in the diaspora? In the weeds, it's really, really messy. So what we try to do as, as researchers and mobilizers and people trying to educate the body of Christ is we talk in generalizations. And that typically falls back onto a language or, or nation state identification like Pakistani or Urdu speakers. Well, and as you talk about it, it sounds so messy. It makes me think, should we even focus on that? But then as we've talked about, it's important for us to focus on that because some of these differences do change the way that people are going to, you know, respond to Christians and the church and uh, things in their new place. So it's important for us to still, is that what I'm hearing you say? It's important for us to still, even though it's messy, still look at it and which goes back to that research, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at, so. the thing we have to realize is we don't have this figured out. This is an exercise of problem solving and trying. But if we look at just global trends, typically when we're talking about the diaspora, we're talking about things in, in urban cores. The world is becoming urbanized and the diaspora continues to grow. So just if we want to see people reached, we have to begin to learn how is God going to work in urban centers through diaspora? Like you can't get, you can't get past it. And so to say, should we pay attention to it is like saying, should I pay attention to my house that's on fire? Mm -hmm. Like this is what's happening. You can't ignore what God is doing. All we have to say is what is the best course to respond to what God is doing? which doesn't happen apart from, from God's wisdom and his spirit moving in these urban cores. But what we can do is we can learn uh, best practices. We can learn how people identify. And then when we see God moving through a people, whether it be related around uh, a religious group, a language group, or even among a point of society based off of uh, entertainment, sports, vocations, like all of those become part of their identity when they're here in the United States or Canada because they're participating in all of those 
And all we need to see is the gospel blaze through one of them to say, okay, that was the point that connected them together. Because ultimately what we want to see is not just the gospel go, but we want to see healthy, sustained, uh, reproducing churches. And so at least in my mind, what I look for is what is holding a group of people together? What is the glue Mm -hmm. that's holding people together? That if the gospel gets in it, the gospel over like overtakes it, but it's not what holds it together. Because as, as you know, whenever you have various segmentations among a people, the gospel should be what hold churches together, but it's not always the case, even in the American church, it's this preference or that preference preference. So what I like to do is look and say, what, what is holding this people group together and saying, how can I insert the gospel into that? So this young lady that you had talked about earlier, did what kind of held her together? What do you feel like held her together? And was that glue for you? Yeah. I mean, for her to stay engaged in the American church, it was, it was clearly Jesus and the gospel that held her there. And that, that church actually gave her an opportunity and gave her a voice to speak to some things. But what I, what I really believe, and you see this with a lot of people that come to faith from uh, other religious backgrounds, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, or Sikh, is they're, they're platformed and it becomes that they feel used. It's like, hey, I want to put you on the platform to speak. You're going to go do this. You're going to go do this. It's kind of like they're holding them up. And I saw wisdom in her and some people around her that that protected her from that. Because what can happen is, you know, you you slide into, you know, sinful habits, you become prideful, or you become jaded because you feel used and or hurt. And so right now I'm not connected with her as frequently as I was in the past, but to the best of my knowledge, it's it's her being connected to South Asian believers in the gospel that's holding her together. And in the South Asian church, it's led by an Indian Hindu background person. So it wasn't even religious affinity. Mm-hmm. They, they worship in Urdu and he, he teaches in Hindi, which if, if you know, those languages are very, very similar. Um, but it, it's primarily Indians, Pakistanis, and even Nepalis that are worshiping together. So it's not even so much language that's holding this church together. It's the South Asian identity. Well, which it makes, I mean, and it, which makes it sound like a lot of to do with um, holding people together too is the relationships that they build um, with the people. Because I hear you seeing, you know, talking about the trust aspect of that as well. Yeah, whenever we think of trust, uh, the the opposite side of that is is like what is a UPG in the diaspora? Uh, a lot of Middle Eastern peoples, and I don't say this. Um, in a shameful way, but I've had many Arab brothers and sisters tell me this is, you know, they don't trust each other and Mm -hmm. trust is a really big issue. And so then it also becomes very challenging to uh, see Arab Muslims come to faith through the witness of another Arab Muslim that's from another country or another tribe or speaks a different dialect because they are like, who are you? I don't trust you. And then that bleeds into churches and just the Arab view of leadership often is challenging because just it's it's one person that's, that's a leader. And then if you have opposing views, you see churches split, you have all of this. That's really a cultural thing. Uh, just just recently, I was with um, an Arab believer and he was he was telling me this. He's like, it's like, but we we struggle in this way. We, we need to know how to resolve conflict in the Arab church. We need to know biblical leadership. 
And again, that comes back to discipleship. But whenever you're thinking of the, uh, the initial steps of seeing a UPG reached, it's also a barrier. What One example, there is a Kurdish believer in the city I'm in, and she was trying to connect me with some other people who were potentially spiritually open from the Kurdish community. And we go and we visit them in their home and it immediately becomes, uh, you know, he, he is berating this sister of saying, oh, you can't trust her. She steals. And then I go to her, let, let's, let's call her Sally. And I go to Sally and I say, Sally, hey, uh, uh, let's call him Bill. Bill was saying all this. And I, I tried to say, hey, don't, don't say that. Let's, let's come together and talk about that. And you know what her response was? Even though she's a sister, it was then to begin to say things about him. Oh, he, da, 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 da. <laughs> and that is, you know, the Kurdish community, which is not Arab, which is not Persian, which is not Turkish, its own unique identity with, you know, six different languages being spoken. And so what does it look like to be a Kurd in the diaspora is also a very unique thing to discuss because their identity is Kurdish, but they speak a variety of languages. They're from multiple different countries, as I mentioned, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. And then you throw them into a city like Nashville or Dallas or San Diego, and 40% speak this language and 50% speak this language. And it's like, what is their identity? What is the homogenous unit in the Kurdish community in North America? Those are the types of questions that are challenging to answer from, you know, like an armchair. You know, they talk about the armchair quarterback. And some of you may be listening like, oh, but Rebecca, it's just da, da, da. <laughs> that's like a Monday morning quarterback. That's, that's the armchair quarterback. Yeah, you can sound really good sitting in the chair, but until you start going engaging, you don't see the depth of messiness of identity in, in the diaspora, especially among the unreached. So again, if it comes back to how do we define it, you, you have to go up to like 30,000 feet to define it, to make it even a little bit clear for people of what it looks like. But then we have to tell them once you get boots on the ground, once you get your boots muddy, man, you're going to find so many different segmentations among a people group. So Rebecca, what, let's, let's, let's pick a city and just... Let's apply this idea to a city because we have people group lists and let's talk about it from the 30,000 foot view. We've talked about it. We've gotten in the weeds a little bit. What, where do you think we should go, Rebecca? I do think we need to kind of focus in on a city specifically and maybe kind of the different peoples and the, these different units that we're hearing and talking about in that in a particular city. So I thought we might should go to L.A. L.A.'s got a large population of at least 18 million. And um, I think I saw on UPG North America where that 4% of those living in the area of L.A. are considered unreached. Yeah, that's that's one way, you know, 4% four, 4% sounds sounds small. I was doing something in a different city and it was 5%, so I changed the wording. If you say it like this, uh, the greater LA area, almost one in every 20 people you meet is from an unreached people group. Doesn't that sound crazy? One in 20. It's, you know, it's a little bit more than that, like maybe one in 22 or whatever at 4%, but 5% is one in 20, and that just sounds like 
so crazy. You can go on the street and one in every 20 people is going to be an unreached people group in the Los Angeles metro area. Now, as we, when we think of L.A., and you say, what, what is an unreached people group in the diaspora? They aren't widespread. Typically, they have their own communities. And in L.A., they're somewhat easily identifiable. So, you know, there's, there's 16 official or dedicated ethnic enclaves and districts, meaning it has a name like Chinatown or uh, Tehranjalis, where all the Iranians live. So it's, it's, they're easily identifiable. So then you don't even have to talk to 20 people. You can just go to these enclaves and you actually find those unreached people groups. Sounds like some great shopping to shop around the world to go to some of these different enclaves, these different 16 ethnic um, enclaves. Another fact that I was reading about L.A. was half of the languages that are spoke there are not English. So half of the people, half, half of the 18 million speak English and half of them in, in their homes. So their heart language, what they speak on a regular basis in their homes is um, half of the population is not English. That's pretty phenomenal to think about L.A. So if we think of diaspora, we've defined diaspora as people living outside of their homeland or, uh, you know, heritage countries. When we think of unreached people groups in L.A., yeah, about 4%. But in reality, over 50% of L.A. are diaspora people because many of those are from the, the Latin America. Many are from Mexico. Many are from places like Vietnam, Cambodia, China, Japan, where, yes, there are unreached people groups in those countries, but the majority of people who immigrate, uh, this, is, this is worth saying, too, it's not, not to be overlooked, like Japan, for example. Uh, Japanese are considered unreached people group globally, but in the diaspora, specifically in North America, there's an overwhelming number of Japanese believers, like Pew Research, Pew or Barna did some research, and it was something like, uh, don't quote me on this, I don't have the statistic in front of me, approximately about 30% of the Japanese in the United States identified as Christian. Mm. And so what, what does that tell us? It tells us that oftentimes, especially in lower socioeconomic diaspora populations, it's minority peoples that are the ones that are immigrating to the United States and Canada. So for example, I mentioned my Pakistani friend, she, Sally, um, she was Shia Muslim. Uh, Pakistan is majority Sunni Muslim. The Shias in Pakistan are persecuted against. Even though she was a lawyer, she came to the United States as an asylee, so seeking asylum. So if you remember back several episodes, we talked about asylees. Well, there are a larger number of Shia Muslim Pakistanis than there are in Pakistan. But that also applies to countries that have a Christian contingency. So for example, in, in Lebanon, there are a lot of Lebanese Christians in Lebanon. But as they immigrate, you see whoever is the minority is typically the people that are going to immigrate because they can come as a refugee or an asylee. Another very good example is the Uyghurs in China. They are a Muslim minority and they are a diaspora people. Why? Because the Chinese want to oppress and persecute them. And in every sense that they can make, they want to flee. So there are all of these people groups that are marginalized 
in their country of origin because of their faith, not just being Christian, but also Muslim, also Buddhist. And so we have to recognize that just because there are 300,000 Iranians living in Los Angeles, it doesn't mean that they are all Shia Muslim. Mm -hmm. You'll actually find a lot of uh, Persian Jews in Los Angeles. Why? Because they are a minority in Iran and they're, they're fleeing from something. And then they, I guess they come together when they come here, the, all those that are. Hmm. Yeah. So let's, let's just, I'm going to run through the list of what we have documented as unreached people groups in Los Angeles. And if you're listening and you're in Los Angeles, we, we know that there is a great need for more people to be gospel witnesses among these people. And so we just want to say, reach out and we can help connect you to people on the ground who are willing to uh, train and receive more people to work among the unreached in Los Angeles. But here, here are some of the people groups that we find in Los Angeles. So approximately 40,000 Tehrani Persian Jews. Uh, a lot of people don't know that the largest number of Persian Jews in the world live in the United States. There's more Persian Jews than in Iran or Israel. Uh, and then we have a couple more uh, Jewish people, groups, uh, is Israeli, Sabra. And so oftentimes in these conversations, we overlook the Jewish population, but um, we're, we're including that because they are considered an unreached people group. And then we come to the Punjabi Sikhs. So to talk just a little bit about the Punjabi Sikhs, Rebecca, where are Punjabi Sikhs from? India. India, from the Punjab state. If you go to a resource like Joshua Project and you look for unreached people groups in the Punjab state of India, you're going to find dozens, maybe even hundreds of unreached people groups. But remember, in the diaspora, what happens to their identity? It gets wider. So... In the diaspora, we classify them related on language and religion because Punjab is a language and Sikhism is their religion. Even though in the country of origin, they're going to be narrowed down even more into more distinct people groups. So that's an example of their identities getting wider. Mm. Rebecca, share with us a couple couple of the, the other people groups in, in L.A. Um, I know that the Persians... There are over 127,000 Persians, um, and I know that's one of those unique groups that you were talking about earlier, um, I believe, in the different um, homogeneous <laughs> um, units in part of that. In that. Yeah, the, the Persians. So an, another thing that people don't always recognize is the Iran is a minority-majority culture country. So it's kind of a mouthful. What do I mean by that? It means that the majority of the population in Iran are not Persians. You know, they have all of these minority groups that add up to be greater than the main group, which are Persians, but it's a minority majority. You have, you know, some Kurds, Armenians, all kinds of these groups. Uh, but we're classifying this specifically as Persian Muslims. There's actually about 300,000 Iranians uh, meaning people from Iran, which includes those Iranian Jewish peoples, uh, a contingency of Armenians from Iran, so on and so forth. Another another group would be Turkish Muslims. 
So from Central Asia, you also have Afghan Muslims. Uh, that number is uh, you know, growing as a result of the fall of, of Kabul. You also have Bangladeshis, which they're everywhere. And there's a pretty yeah. large population of those there in Los Angeles. Yeah, Bangladeshis, uh, also a people group that you can find almost anywhere in the world, Gujarati Hindus. So again, uh, if you think of identities getting wider and how we want to communicate about unreached people groups in the diaspora, we, we want to use a term that's wider so it doesn't get too messy and nuanced when we're talking about mobilization. So again, Gujarat, Gujarati Hindus, where are they from, Rebecca? They are also from India. Yep. And so Gujarat is also a state in India, and it's also a language, and Hindus is a religion. So again, we're taking the language and religion, and we're joining them together and saying, yes, there's going to be cultural nuance among a group that large, but for the point of mobilization of workers, mobilization of prayer and missions education, that's the type of terms that we're using to define what is a people group or an unreached people group in the diaspora. Now, one, you know, as we talk about India and all of the n- numerous groups there, um, there is a large, also from Thailand, we all, we put them under the um, topic of Thai, and there are 34,000, over 34,000 of those in LA, but they're not quite, Thailand is not broken up quite as much as India is with all those different smaller groups. So how are we defining the Thai there in L.A.? Yeah, so we're identifying Thai Buddhists. So that's related around country of origin and, and religion with you know, Thailand being you know, one of the, the largest Buddhist countries um, in the world. So, yeah, we, we have this variety of ways that people identify, but oftentimes it's language and religion. So like another example from South Asia in Los Angeles is what we call the Indo-Pak Muslims. Mm. So indo is like Indian, so the Indian subcontinent, Indo-Pak Muslims. And what that is a shared identity around is the Urdu language and the Muslim religion. So again, language and religion. There's instances where we don't always follow that. And so an example would be like Palestinian Arab Muslims and maybe like Jordanian Arab Muslims or Syrian Arab Muslims, where really they may have a slight nuance and difference in dialect, but it's really like a North Levantine Arabic language. But we're, we're identifying them differently because they do have rather large cultural nuance in, in how they live, how they would intermarry, the food that's from their country. Um, but we do have a little bit of nuance with, with Arabs and not just like, dialect like northern levantine but we'll actually segment those countries a little bit and then you have other arab peoples in la like moroccan arabs or egyptian arabs which are significantly fairly significantly different than like a lebanese or jordanian or palestinian arab from you know the north african region i don't even know if we've talked about all of the people groups yet but Rebecca, you think they have like a, at least a thumbnail sketch of the unreached people groups in LA? And we could do this for, you know, a variety of cities. But what we really sense is, uh, and there's, there's a great need for workers. There's a great need for prayer among the unreached in LA. 
And anytime that I get an opportunity to talk about something other than my own city that I'm working in, I'm going to talk about the Kurdish people and I'm going to talk about L.A. because it's it's a place where we want to mobilize prayer and workers. All right, Rebecca, I think we'll wrap it up right there. You've been listening to Let's Talk Diaspora, where we've looked at what is an unreached people group in the diaspora. It was probably a little hard to follow because really just by definition, the reality of the unreached in the diaspora is challenging. It's messy. And then we shared with you just some who are the unreached people groups in the diaspora in L.A. And if you check out the show notes, you can find links uh, to where you can find more information about them, how you can pray for them, and even how you can begin to engage them. So thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Diaspora. To help us out, hit the subscribe button so that you will be notified when future episodes launch. This season is sponsored by UPG North America. Go to upgnorthamerica.com for more information.